Everybody, welcome to Young Persons Radio on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Colby Smith. My guest today is a Los Angeles-based writer whose work has appeared in just about every publication known to man, I guess. Uh, I'm talking The New Yorker, The New York Times, The LA Times, L, MTV, and so much more. She's interviewed everybody from Bill Hader to Lana Del Rey, and along with Tess Lynch and Emily Yoshida, she co-hosts the wonderful podcast Night Call on the iHeart Radio Network. Who else could it be but Molly Lambert? Wow, what a great intro. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I will just go ahead and, and cop to what I told you right before we went on, which is that there was a stretch in 2013, 2014, where all I had to do to talk to the cool girls at Brooklyn parties was talk about girls in hoodies. Wow. I love <laughs> being popular in places that I am not. That yes. Sounds- <laughs> <laughs> you have a bi-coastal following. <laughs> I, I accept. My dad is from New York, and so... I don't think he thought I was a real writer until I was in some New, New York-based uh, publications. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cer- certainly, I appreciate the affirmation. Yeah. It's sort of like the comedian thing of just like no parent believes you are successful until you're like on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I was having a a conversation about this with a friend of mine once who was like, yeah, parents think Jerry Seinfeld is the only comedian. (laughs) Um, In a way, isn't he? You know what? That's a very good point. (laughs) Where are you on Friends versus Seinfeld? I mean, I watched them both. I think they both have a lot of issues. Um, (laughs) And I've rewatched both of them recently. I think it's interesting that like they're still so popular, yes. you know, because we've moved so far away from the three camera live audience sitcom, but clearly there's something about it that calls to people still. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's just like, maybe it's like a Nick, Nick at Night for kids is what I've thought. Right. Maybe that's like what was on in reruns when kids, you know, when the people that are now Gen Z were kids. That's my, my, my theory. Oh, definitely. I mean, I definitely have that, too, with just, like, sitcoms. Like, I know every episode of Full House just because it was, like, on at 9 o'clock on Nick at Night when I was trying to go to bed. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've definitely also done Wings. We talked a lot oh, about sure. Frasier on Night Call. We like to think we started the uh, the weird Twitter Frasier renaissance because a lot of people like Frasier, it turns out. People love Frasier. It's crazy. It's sort of like the most unlikely candidate for like a sitcom to have this like renaissance especially now because it's just like about this snob essentially (laughs) like yeah totally although a friend of mine my friend roxy was like it's a show that has men who have good relationships with each other which i've never thought about it that way but it's also a show about a person with a podcast which is i think why we started talking about it (laughs) about a guy with a radio show who's like a, a local personality right yeah in Seattle. Like, imagine setting a show in Seattle now, too. <laughs> Love that. That fake Seattle skyline. Exactly. Well, uh, I would love to start off uh, specifically, Molly, by talking about Eve Babbitts, if that's okay with you. Sure, yeah. Because you, of course, wrote the introductory essay to I Used to Be Charming, which is the, the new collection of all of her nonfiction, or a lot of her nonfiction work. Uh, yeah, and that was a New York Review of Books book, and I was very stoked about it. I'm still very stoked about it. 
Yeah, it, it was very, it was like, I got that book as a gift, like last uh, Christmas, and I like opened it up and I was like, oh my God, Molly Lambert wrote the essay to this. <laughs> like, yeah, it was How did cool. that come about? Yeah. You know, uh, one of the editors at the New York Review of Books, uh, Sarah Kramer, asked me to do it. I think maybe uh, Emily Gould might have recommended me initially, mm. which uh, she's the person who turned me on to Eve Babbitts because they republished some Eve Babbitts in her her Emily books uh, thing. And I had never read Eve Babbitts because she was basically out of print at that right. point. So, you know, once I read a little bit, I was like, oh, you know, I didn't know this person existed. I didn't know there was like a, you know, a counterculture woman who was this prolific and who was published and who was collected in books, you know, because mm-hmm. certainly you can find some stuff like that in magazines and old magazines. But yeah, I was just like, wow, I'm glad I didn't learn about this earlier because it would have like ruined me as a writer, you know? <laughs> I would have been like, oh, here's someone who like did all the th- the exact thing I was wanted to do. Like somebody did it already. Just, totally. You know, reading her sort of arguments about people's arguments about Los Angeles uh, from the point of view of a native and the way she sort of just deflates it with humor in a very funny way always. <laughs> And charming, you know, it's like she she isn't defensive about L.A. She's like, oh, yeah, we all know that like everybody thinks it's like a stupid place for stupid people. But like we know it's not like that. So who cares what they think? Um, yeah, yeah, she just, also she just kind of like welcomes she kind of like welcomes the reader into that uh, like point of view, too, where she's like she's addressing you as if you're like her friend who she's like bringing along to all the cool parties right totally she's so she's so voicey and you know all the writers that I really loved that I when I first started writing on the internet that I was trying to emulate were all these counterculture you know 60s and 70s kind of gonzo journalism people obviously Hunter S. Thompson like everybody else but also you know, Richard Meltzer, I really like, you mm. know, Lester Bangs, obviously. But, you know, a lot of them were dudes, and it was definitely like a dude-heavy genre. You sure. find a lot of collections of stuff like that that don't have any women in them, you know? And so I think, like anyone, I just was like, well, there must not have been any women. And it's like, no, of course there were women. They've just been, like, written, you know, written written out in a way. Totally. Um, my friend Karina Longworth is doing this amazing series right now on her podcast. You must remember this about Polly Platt. Yes. The Invisible Woman. That's about, you know, I feel like Polly Platt is kind of like the Eve Babbitts of film. It's like she was there at every moment that mattered and she was very important, but in order, yeah, she just kind of got, got written out in a way. Right. So yeah. Um, just to to rediscover voices like that and for for the internet to you know be a place where you can like explore your voice as much as you want you know the I just feel like in her essays she takes such she stretches out so much and that's what's so great about them yeah totally I mean I feel like one of the things that hits me about the collection in general is just like how much stuff she gets to just kind of go off on you know <laughs> like like the, her range that she demonstrates is amazing especially given that she keeps the voice so coherent throughout yeah totally and I always love people who have that kind of range who have like a consistent voice but can write about anything you mm-hmm. know 
that's what I always like. And I like that in filmmakers too, you know, like I like Robert Altman and other 70s yeah. person because he, you know, can make a good movie in any genre. And to me, that's like the mark of a good writer is somebody who can write about anything and find a way in. But yeah, I do think it's like people kind of want you to have a lane or they did at least at one point it felt mm-hmm. like, you know, um, because magazines are, are dying, you know, there's yeah. not there's not that ability for magazines to let people try things anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or there's just not money in it. You can do it, obviously. You can <laughs> write. write about whatever you want, but there's not like, oh, uh, yeah, there's not like a good... Uh, there's not an infrastructure for yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> right. And also at the same time, like, like blogs have disappeared. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have gone into podcasting because it is a lot of the same things we like about blogging, the sort of tangentialness and, and rambliness of it. Mm. Uh, but it's also less effort in a way. Yeah. I, I, I will tell you, uh, we talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, but I just watched the movie Julie and Julia again. Oh yeah. <laughs> for the first time since what it, that time came capsule. out. It really, it felt in some ways more dated than like, like a taxi driver or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was just like, she has this line in it where she's like, I could have a blog. I have thoughts. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. I mean, all the stuff in that movie about Julia Child is amazing. <laughs> I wish it were just Julia. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, Julia Child has such an amazing story because she didn't start writing until her 40s, I think. And she mm-hmm. really, I don't know. She's just a fascinating person to me and that performance is kind of silly by Meryl Streep but the whole movie is so silly yeah it's fun that's the kind of thing people want to watch right now it's like Nancy Myers movies it was it was a warm embrace I'll tell you that 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 movie yeah I mean I think the through line between like Eve Babbitts and and people like Nancy Myers and and Polly Platt is it's like why not have that warmth and that sort of like you know enjoyment why does art doesn't have to be serious and and uptight it can be like i mean nancy myers movies are a little uptight but yeah yeah i hate to i hate to correct you molly but this is the this is nora efron oh my god (laughs) i'm gonna get murdered by the the rom-com patrol sorry nora efron that makes a lot more sense also um, but Nora Ephron makes more sense as a person to talk about with Eve Babbitts and Polly Platt because she's totally. another, like 70s woman. Yes. Um, Nancy Myers is more of like an 80s lady, I think. Damn, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's so true. Um, so sorry to Nora Ephron for, <laughs> for not knowing she made Julia and Julia. You know, but I, yeah, I never watched a lot of those Nora Ephron movies because I think I was, you know, just in, internally misogynistic enough to be like they're dumb and right right watch them when you finally watch them they're all delightful oh yeah something's got to give yeah they're all just like that's a nancy myers movie (laughs) oh my god (laughs) (laughs) we've completed the circle (laughs) um yeah Yes, anyway, yes, so, sorry. Um, but yeah, I definitely feel like Nora Ephron and Eve Babbitts are sort of like, they're like West Coast, East Coast mirror images of each other almost. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think 
what a lot of what Karina talks about on her podcast about Polly Platt is that in the 70s, I feel like there was this feeling in the 60s too, you know, that men and women are sort of on equal footing and, you know, you're entering this new world where they can just be judged on the merits of their talents. But obviously there's like a, still a lot of bullshit and sexism that mm-hmm. went into that. And so I think when you read about somebody as incredibly talented as Eve Babbitts and people are like, well, why weren't people like giving her movie deals and like, you know, why didn't everyone know she was a genius? And it's like, well, they, they were all trying to make their own careers happen. You know, it's like, they were all competitive with each other and she didn't, yeah, she didn't really get the sort of treatment that she's getting now where she's being rediscovered as like this, this great female writer. I feel like at the time she was you know, just, just a great writer. Definitely. I mean, what, what, what do you think it is about like this particular moment? Like, do you have any theories about like why now is when like she kind of fits this moment? Well, my theory was that it was because all these writers that came up on the internet really relate to her because she writes in that sort of conversational personalized way that people write on the internet, you know, where it's like, hey, I'm writing this for an audience of, like, just you, basically. Um, but she's also just taking you to very fun places that it's fun to go. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just think it's, like, I know a lot of really smart female writers who've had to do party reporting and stuff like that. And my theory that I kind of say in the intro is, like, she realized that, like, female interests aren't taken seriously by, by male writers anyway. Mm-hmm. And so she kind of just like doubled down on it and being like, I'm going to like look into the mo- the things that you think are the most frivolous and yes. also like reveal that a lot of male geniuses and, you know, Jim Morrison and Francis Ford Coppola and all these kind of like lionized 70s men that she hangs out with, like that they're actually kind of silly and frivolous. <laughs> oh my God. The way, well. the way she writes about Coppola in the Godfather 2 piece is so funny. Oh, it's so good. I it's, mean, just, it's just, he wouldn't stop asking me to run away with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like she's just, she knows everybody, you know, because she was dating the producer. Right. And I think that as a lot of these dudes' reputations got established and as they became like figures of profit, People, yeah, you don't want to hear the the takedowns or the mm-hmm. takedowns would get kind of like shuttled, shuttled off. You know, I also love uh, the Julia Phillips book, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, where, you know, she was a, a 70s like super producer, first female producer to win an Oscar, I believe. Right. And she just wrote this amazing tell-all just about... <laughs> Everybody she'd ever known. It's another great, if you love Eve Babbitts, I definitely recommend Julia Phillips. She's a little more like hard edged and, uh-huh. uh, and, and she, you know, ends up going very deep into drug addiction, but it's just an incredible book. Yeah. Cause it's like, she's touching this third rail of like, oh, you're not supposed to talk about these famous people that everybody loves in an honest right. way, even though you were there when they were coming up, you know, and totally. You kind of making making this image for themselves well yeah, part of i mean this is kind of like a a kind of a running uh gag almost like throughout the eve babbitt's collection it's just like how many names pop up that you recognize now you know yeah she's just like, like she's she, hanging out at the troubadour bar and it's just like oh and then you know uh, jackson brown tries to buy me a drink you know it's like right she knows everybody she did also the art for uh 
a Buffalo Springfield album and mm-hmm. a couple other things. Like she, she also didn't start writing, I think, until her thirties, which uh, like just just you know similar to Julia Child. I think she didn't like. She wasn't. You would assume that this person would just know from the beginning that they're a writer because they're such a good writer. But she really kind of floated around doing a lot of creative things before she started writing. And one of the things that is suggested in Lillian Olick's, uh Hollywood's Eve is that she wrote Eve's Hollywood as a response to Joan Didion's The White Album because mm. she was friends with Joan Didion, but she also was like competitive as a writer with Joan Didion and I think when she read the White Album she was like oh another person being like Los Angeles is this horrible place that you know destroys your soul and yes ends in tragedy and and catastrophe um and so she wrote this kind of response to be like it's also not that it's also right. a regular place where regular people live regular lives you know mm-hmm. a lot certainly a lot of like east coasters come to Los Angeles to drink themselves to death and you know walk in walk into the ocean but that's such a small fraction of what happens in Los Angeles and Los Angeles is such a big diverse place right. you know that to reduce it down to that is just so so redactive that she wrote a funny thing about it you know and I also like Joan Didion. You know, I think it's funny to to kind of dunk on Joan Didion sometimes. Because, <laughs> you know, as an Angelino, like, certainly I thought it was sort of, it also annoyed me that Joan Didion was like the LA writer because I was like, she's from Sacramento. Oh, know? yes, yes. Which is different. Um, and her perspective and all, you know, she has this kind of pilgrim, you know, Western uh just Aristotle, you know, more just a, she comes from a different world. She comes from Mm -hmm. like the old money, Northern California world. Right. And she's not like, she's not like a countercultural person, you know, and she, you can kind of sense her disapproval of the Mm -hmm. Haight-Ashbury when she's in the Haight-Ashbury, you know, Um, which also it's like by the time Joan Didion gets to the Haight-Ashbury, uh, for that piece, um, according to some other stuff I've read, it's like basically what happened was people started doing lots of speed. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't even that it was like just all the druggy flower children wandering around. It was that like people were starting to become speed freaks. Right. Uh, but according to Eve Babbitts, Joan Didion was also a speed freak. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why Eve Babbitts is so great is because she'll like say something like that. And yeah, she'll like, dish. She knows. She knows. Yeah, she'll dish about everybody. Yeah, I think that thing about uh, about Joan Didion not being a countercultural figure is really interesting because I, I wish I could remember the who wrote the piece, but there was like a takedown of Joan Didion a couple years ago that like made the rounds that essentially... Do you know what I'm talking about? They essentially like leveled this, the, leveled the complaint at her that like she wasn't really interested in like usurping the systems of power in America. She was just interested in getting her piece of it. Does this sound well, familiar? Sure. I mean, I've read, I've read some takedowns of Joan Didion. You know, I've also read some good takedowns uh, of her from like the South American viewpoint about her sort of writings about South America mm. and, you know, from Mexican writers about her writings about Mexico that. They're, they're a little colonialist, you know. And sure, sure. 
I think the thing about Joan Didion is like she just gets so much put on her as being sort of like the one female writer that a lot of men can name, you know? Right. And like that is the only female writer that men will compare like another good female writer to, which is also like, why do you only compare them to other female writers always? Right, yeah. But I always felt like Joan Didion and Susan Sontag are both kind of like trotted out as like, well, you know, I read women, I read these two women. Right. But there's something sort of like in, in their academic and essay writing, at least it's very like desexualized in a way. Like I know Susan Sontag obviously is like a sexual person personally, but their, their writing is both very serious and very sort of, it's not about, it's not about pleasure, you know? Right. And, and Eve the, totally is. Right. And like all the other like male 60s and 70s writers are so much about like, you know, I'm going to go do all these drugs and then I'm going to go ball all these chicks <laughs> that just to have like any kind of a female version of that feels great. You know, I don't know that uh, Eve's politics are super strong even in the 60s and 70s she's sure. not you know there's like a couple of mentions to like she mentions the the, the grape boycott uh during the cesar chavez um strikes in the 70s like briefly you know but she'll use it for like context but again it's like i feel like because yeah you just shouldn't have to put everything they shouldn't have to represent everything about what a what a female writer's experience could be. They both like Joan Didion and Eve Babbitt both represent like a very specific person writing about right. their own like very specific experiences. And it would be great if we could have like hundreds more of those and like yeah. not not just white women and you know uh in in like literary culture, whatever that means, you know? Definitely. Uh, yeah, I think it's it, it having the 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 two exist and having them both be true, I think is like the more interesting way of approaching them together. Yeah. They were friends, you know, that's the whole thing. It was like a, like a friendly rivalry and they probably both, you know, they both spurred each other to write very good things. Mm -hmm. But when people say like, why didn't Eve Babbitt's get like, you know, the Hollywood deal that Joan Didion got, I think it's because Joan Didion only got it because she was married to John Gregory Dunn, you know? Yeah. And he did a lot of the, he acted kind of like a literary spouse Mm -hmm. does for men a lot of the time where it's like he did all the research, you know, (laughs) he did all the planning. Um, Uh And Eve Babbitt is very upfront about the fact that she's like not really in control of her career as a writer. She's just kind of like going along with what's, what's there, you know? Yeah. Um, But again, it's still, it's still amazing that there were so many magazines, like in this collection, especially that I wrote the intro for, it's like, she's writing for sports magazine, (laughs) writing for, for wet, the magazine about the hot tub lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like travel magazines and all kinds of stuff. It's like, what's the, what's the, the one, I can't remember the name of it now, but the, the piece she writes about yoga was for like a random one also. Yeah, they're all pretty random, and you just have to think. It's just the mind boggles at like, oh, look at all these magazines that had budgets to like give her <laughs> to yeah. write things. Um, totally, I remember hearing an interview with Lewis Lapham years ago when he talked about like uh, being a journalist in the sixties and writing for the Saturday Evening Post, and just going like, they sent me out to Washington D.C. and they put me up in the finest hotel they could. <laughs> it's like, oh, you hear crazy stories, even from like the two thousands. You know, I right. 
you'll just hear crazy stories about how they were spending money and what they were spending it on where you're like, that doesn't seem sustainable. <laughs> totally. Even like, I just read that book, Meet Me in the Bathroom. Oh yeah. That's and, a real Julie and Julia era snapshot. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's just like, even just talking about like, like spin magazine being even like around, it's just like, Oh yeah, I kind of remember that. And they were just like really on the beat in a way that it's, it's kind of yeah, crazy sure. to think of now. My friend Alex Papadimus worked for Spin Magazine in those years. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just talks about, but it was also like they were being forced to promote just like insanely bad bands a lot of the time, you know? Well, yeah, sure. You'd be like, this is the next big thing because all music magazines are a little bit dictated by record companies. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that the journalism industry having collapsed in the way that it has, it's like, maybe there was a time when I would have like mourned more for like, Oh, it would be fun to like have a travel budget and go write stuff. Right. But now it's just like so much real life is happening that is so far removed from that. And like the people that still have that are so few, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. Anna Wintour and that's it basically. (laughs) Um, That now I'm just more concerned about, well, now I'm just like, how can we, how can we create like a new journalism model that is free and accessible, but ideally people can get paid to do, you know? Right. Yeah. And if you can't get paid for it, you end up doing it for free anyway, just because yeah. some of these things need to get out. Yeah. Um, I think you, you see it kind of cropping up. I mean, um, uh, certainly in LA and New York, you know, you, there's all the like sort of nonprofit news uh, outlets that have kind of come up a little bit recently. Um, I guess ProPublica being like the ultimate model, but that's like a very different thing to what you're talking about, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a website in LA that we have uh, called Knock LA that's mm-hmm. all just written for free and posted for free because a lot of it is just political, local politics stuff that you know, sometimes basically the LA times is the only paper left in LA now, which is crazy. Um, so there's like some little blogs that have popped up, but you know, if you can't get a story in the LA times, that's kind of it. So things that have been developing around that, my friends Hayes and Scott and Alyssa Walker have a podcast called the LA podcast. Oh, I know it well. Oh, cool. <laughs> I, I don't I don't live there, but uh, I'll tell you, I, I listen to Hayes's like every other podcast of his. So I figured I might as well. Yeah. I mean, I will say round it out. I think the L.A. journalism scene has always had a kind of collectivist feel to it because people are just want it to exist at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very different than the East Coast journalism world where people are being hyper competitive with each other for, you know, limited amounts of jobs yeah um here it's like there kind of is nothing and i you know that competitiveness obviously exists it's just in hollywood i think it's more about tv and film sure um but in terms of journalism it's like people just want to support there being some journalism left in los angeles (laughs) people really (laughs) want to boost each other's stuff and help each other out um it's kind of great and you know, when I was growing up, I read the LA Weekly, which used to be a great yeah. alternative newspaper. And that was one of the things that made me be like, oh, LA is cool. <laughs> Everything in this makes it seem cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, before that, there was the LA Free Press, which was 
yeah. apparently, you know, which is the, I would dream of bringing back something like the LA Free Press. But, you know, I think all these things ar arose out of the fact that those issues weren't being covered in the LA Times at that time. You right. Know? They weren't covering police violence because they're a pro-police newspaper. Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel like talking about like alt-weeklies and that kind of thing is like, um, it, it was like whenever I was like, you know, going to school and like going to getting like media internships and stuff, everyone was like, oh yeah, just like move to a city, find the alt-weekly that's there and like pitch them stuff and uh, then like you'll be fine. And then like they just slowly over the years, I like moved to New York, just slowly crumbled. Finally, I right. guess the Village Voice being like the last kind of pillar to fall. Right, which is so sad. And the LA Weekly got bought out by a right-wing person who completely gutted it and laid right. everybody off. So, you know, we've seen the dismantling of journalism for political reasons by, like, bad people a mm -hmm. lot recently. Oh, yeah. But it does feel like something always kind of sprouts up in response because yeah. it's got to exist. Right. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we all wish we had as many magazines as Eve Babbitts did to, to, to choose from. Oh my god, so many magazines. I was saying to somebody the other day that it's so weird reading her during quarantine because she writes about like the most fun parts of regular life, like going to concerts, and, like going to the movies, and like even just like flirting. Like, like she writing her makes me want to like go out, and I can't. <laughs> right, totally. But it's also, you know, it's a way of going out when you can't. Totally, yeah. That's why I watch a show on Bravo about people sailing around the world on yachts uh, called oh, Below Deck. Oh, is it Deck. Below Deck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love Below Deck. Well, I love it because it's about the people who work on the boat. It's not about the people who, the rich people. It's about the crew. Right. But, you know, it happens to take place in, like, the French Riviera and <laughs> the Bahamas and just, like, anywhere you'd ever want to go <laughs> it totally oh yeah it's like it's also stuff like that it's just like i am not i don't think i would watch this were it like normal out right now but it's just like this some something is working about this for me in this moment yeah well you need a little escapism totally and eve babbitts provides excellent escapism definitely and um, even when she's being serious even in her the main essay in this book about her injury she's like still very funny always yes Oh my God. Th that line she has about like, oh, if I had died, my friends would kill me or something like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, that that's awesome. That rules. <laughs> it is awesome. You, uh, w one quick thing I want to say about her and then I want to uh, um, pivot to another LA woman, Lana Del Rey, um, is uh, one of the things that talking about uh, uh, like wanting to like go out after you read Eve is like, you have this line about her in the essay where you talk about how she crushes the notion that women were objects rather than subjects. She effortlessly embodied both roles. Uh, and I think it's so refreshing to read her, like, as so much writing about, like, sexual pursuit uh, now is, like, ca caught up in, like, power dynamics, you know? I mean, for obvious reasons. But she just, like, makes it seem fun. Uh, and I just find that very refreshing. I don't know if you have similar thoughts about it. Yeah, definitely. And she's very like seductive in her writing. Her her narrative voice is very sort of like, I'm going to tell you something, but you have to like come close to hear it. Um, but I also think that, you know, some of that could have been a projection, obviously, um, like all writers have projections. She's just definitely. very extremely good at it. Um, uh, my mom worked in 
film in the 70s. She worked for Coppola for a while and she never oh, encountered wow. Eve Babbitts, but um, Eve Babbitts, I guess, was hanging out at the Zoetrope Studios uh, all the time, just kind of ambiently. And yeah. so like another friend of my mom's was like, oh yeah, I met Eve Babbitts. She was like a weird lady, like smoking cigars in a caftan, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Where I was like, oh, he wasn't char, you know, he didn't, maybe, maybe that's how she appeared to some people. And that's why she wrote it even more. Like, right. In my writing, I can control it. Always. Totally. Yeah. That's like a, a man who shot Liberty Valance, like print the legend kind of, well, kind I of think thing. All writers make themselves a little bit like sexier and more charming than you actually are like that's what's fun about writing oh you know? definitely it's, like, it's a relief it's like <laughs> hey, you get to control it unlike in real life um and so i love i love just some of the essays in this book that let that veil slip a little bit more and are and are sort of like i'm doing an act but it's also not an act yeah oh it's the best um it's talking about that line that she has of like, um, uh, if I had died, my friends uh, would have killed me. Um, when you interviewed Lana Del Rey uh, last f- a fall, I want to say it was. Yeah, she, summer or fall? Yeah, 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 yeah. She has a line in it that totally reminded me of Eve Babbitt's where you're asking her about when she's photographed uh, with the cop that she's dating. And she says... I didn't know we were being photographed. I would have worn something different. Yes, I thought that was very funny. And I was <laughs> super nervous to do that interview. I because, can't imagine, Molly. Well, because also because it had just come out that she was dating the cop. Yes. And I had to ask her about it. And I was like very just nervous about the whole thing. Um, but it's also, I don't know, interviews are such a weird dance because it's like, it's like a first date. It's like you're meeting somebody. <laughs> Yeah, you're trying, you're trying to get something out of them in an hour. Yes. And then you never see them again, you know, but you have to like, and, and some people are very good at it. Like some people have practiced their, their letting down of their guard, you mm-hmm. know, like I interviewed Jeff Goldblum for something. And it's just clear that like Jeff Goldblum knows how to get interviewed because right. <laughs> that's like his whole thing. And he is just like you would expect in real life. You know, he's like Jeff Goldblumy. Yeah, uh, yeah. He just talks. He just talks and talks with his hands <laughs> right. and goes on and on. Um, and some people you have to like pry it out of them or some people have like talking points that they've been coached on, you know, that mm-hmm. they're not supposed to go around, especially newer people. Like some people also just won't drop the guard at all and you can't get anything. They're just going to give you press talking points and that's it, you know? Um, totally. But I didn't feel that way with Lana Del Rey. I felt like she was open to you know answering some some harder questions mm-hmm. uh well yeah this was also like right after she went on this like twitter tirade about ann powers yeah i mean i think i think it's like i don't know the culture industry got to a point where we were <laughs> like i obviously am totally responsible for this so i don't want to <laughs> not claim credit but you know, a lot of blogging was just like speculating about famous people. And I always thought it was like, oh, I'm writing about like, what does this person represent? I'm not writing about like, right. who, what is this person actually like? Because like, obviously, I don't know, but I can write about 
what do they represent as like a Jungian archetype Mm -hmm. in the general consciousness. But there came a point where like that got too Baroque, I think, and too many people Uh were doing that. And it sort of lost all meaning and and point. (coughs) Um, Hold on one second. Sorry. Yeah, sure. Um, and I would say that was kind of like the peak, obviously, of culture blogging was the point at which everybody was just like, what is Kanye thinking today? Right. <laughs> you know? Um, but it did kind of become less about what does the music sound like? Yes. And I completely understand why a musician would be annoyed if people were always talking about things other than the music. Uh, totally. A female musician, because people tend to talk about you know, what is this female musician wearing? What does she look like on her album cover? Right. Obviously, just a lot more than they talk about. What does this composition sound like? Well, um, I think she, she, Lana Del Rey even says, it, I, I think, I'm pretty sure it's in your interview with her where she's like, you, you say something like, you've been a lot more, you know, public about the release of this album. And she says, well, it's because this album's really good. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I think that a lot of famous people could benefit from from just not posting at all, you know? Right. Because I think mystery is is one of those things that you can't buy, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Or just like people can't, you know, obviously Beyonce is probably the queen of this because she really just controls you you probably can't get like a a real interview with Beyonce that isn't controlled and coordinated by Beyonce's people and and team in some way um but that means she never fucks up you know (laughs) she never and I think people get mad at that sometimes because they're like we want to see her fuck up we want to see her like say something not thought through off the cuff or just something you know that doesn't seem on script right uh but it's pretty amazing that she you know she's famous and powerful enough she can just do that you know she can control it and then you see somebody like madonna who is famous enough to do that and is just post post through it anyway you know right. you're like no madonna stop it like, <laughs> let people rediscover your music and forget that you still want attention a yes. lot. <laughs> well there's something about like needing attention you know it's like beyonce doesn't need doesn't seem like she needs the attention right she beyonce, just gets it yeah. Right. Rihanna doesn't seem like she needs the attention. Adele doesn't, you know, all the, all the sort of most famous mm-hmm. female singers. It's like they get to sort of just dictate um, what the narrative is. So, right. you know, I, I, if somebody wrote a think piece about me, I would probably be very upset. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, especially one, I mean, like, Ann Powers is, like, an amazing writer and, like, uh, have definitely been, like, reading her, like, music criticism forever. And, like, she's, like, very, like, she she's just, like, really smart. And, like, if, if if someone like that said the stuff about me that she said about Lana Del Rey, I would probably do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the relationship between, you know, artists and critics, like, isn't balanced, necessarily. Right. But... <laughs> You know, as a critic, I am sort of like, well, who cares what critics think? It's just an opinion. Well, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um, do you think uh, Norman fucking Rockwell is her best album? I mean, I think it uh, it came out at a good time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think she's obviously also 
done you know fucked up a lot on social media recently recently yeah uh and we kind of addressed it on night call and i said some sort of not amazing things about it that i then like was like no i was wrong to say that sure sure um just well just sort of like my impulse was like well she's always been canceled you know for, <laughs> for some reason or another just like once somebody gets canceled enough times it feels to me like they're just sort of like immune from being canceled right but this was like a fuck up of a different magnitude you yeah. know which was that she was being racist and i don't think even realized she was being racist and then kept mm-hmm. trying to like explain herself rather than just be like i fucked up <laughs> yeah and so yeah as a as a white lady myself i was like i need to not do the like let me explain how i was actually right in this situation <laughs> right uh, like ever again you know because like <laughs> i'm not right and that's fine uh i'm not you know, I don't know everything right. at all. Right. Um, <laughs> I know very little. Okay, well, think, this interview's over. Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think it's like everybody has sort of irrational feelings about their, their quote-unquote faves, you know? Oh, for sure. That are maybe don't fit your, your actual praxis <laughs> definitely yeah it is that thing of just like uh it's even even as as simple as like when when like a director you like makes a bad movie like you go and see it and you're just like well i don't know it was kind of good like this one scene was good you know like you just like bend over backwards to be like it was actually fine right and there's people who are like there's people who who like something more if it's you know if the person is is being viewed as transgressive in some way that's like for sure you're you're roman polanski super fans it's like i'm not going to be the person that's like we have to keep woody allen movies around because like honestly like it's they can go you know (laughs) yeah Uh uh-huh if you you want your art to outlive you like don't be a pedophile (laughs) feeling about it and i I think a lot of these things that are viewed as like sacred texts like that, that if they did just disappear with one generation of like film nerd kids didn't have those movies, like they would just go away. Yeah. 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 It's just like a handful of people don't see any hall. Like what's the, what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) Butterfly (laughs) effect. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Real quick. I wanted to ask you if you'd ever seen, uh, ever seen her live Lana Del Rey. Yeah, I saw her live at the Hollywood Bowl last year. And it was How was? Like, it was it was amazing. It was probably the last big show I ever went to, is what I have realized. Because I was like, oh, that was only last year. Um, and yeah, that was probably the last time I went to like a big concert. <laughs> right, right. I think, yeah. I remember being surprised... And maybe your maybe your set list was different than mine and how few like how relatively few of the songs were from the new album. Yeah, I mean I'm just always happy to be outside at a concert. Oh, totally. And, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not <you> know, criticizing. <laughs> and again, now that I'm like who knows when we'll ever do that again, you know. Yeah. I I treasure any time I got to see any live music. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It feels so far away now. Yeah, it feels like a weird dream. Maybe I'll watch like a concert film. Yeah, a concert film. Watch Woodstock or something. 
Oh, speaking of, I wanted to ask you um, what you thought of the uh, the Taylor Swift documentary. You know what? I didn't watch it, actually. Ah. Because Taylor Swift's another person who I think, yeah, it's like, again, if, if, if we're all speculating, again, I'm super guilty of this, but Taylor Swift is one of those people who controls her narrative so rigidly yes. <laughs> that uh, you really can't, you know, say anything negative about her without her stands going crazy on right, Twitter. Right. But I think I also just kind of like lost interest because the music started getting not not great. Sure, sure. Um, but also I'm just not interested in those documentary, that type of documentary that's like a propaganda film for the person it's about. And Definitely. Because I don't have to write about things like that anymore. I sometimes actively am like, you know what? <laughs> right. I'll sit this one out. Yeah, just as a way of like, no, I'm in control. <laughs> like, Pretty much. Like, <laughs> that's, that's my Taylor Swift tendency. Like, <laughs> I choose. <laughs> yeah. Did you listen to Lover? Yeah, and it's fine. You know, yeah. I, I also think it's fine. Yeah, just like we can, we can leave people in the past if they don't have anything relevant to say to the current moment. Which, right. Uh, is different from the moment that albums like that and Norman fucking Rockwell were made in, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I uh, remember, I, so like Norman fucking Rockwell, I want to say came out like two weeks or something after uh, Lover. Um, and I remember like listening to Lover and being like, hey, this isn't half bad. The old girl, she's still got some, you know, she's still got some juice in her. And then hearing Norman fucking Rockwell and being like, oh no, this is the shit. I mean... <laughs> I do think it's like you like what you like to a certain extent. Yeah, um, for sure. I think the conversation about like somebody's personal politics and their art is one that I'm just always having in my mind and mm -hmm. never fully ending up on, on like, you know, the art and the artist are separate or the art and the artist are inseparable. It's like, I really, I really think about it all the time right. because it, you know, it, it has so much bearing and, so many of the male artists in the pantheon are like extremely bad people. Yes. Um, you know, so I don't want to be the girl boss person who's like, women should be allowed to be like huge assholes too, you know? <laughs> like, women can be like racists and like fuck boys as well. But, um, cause I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't really want that either. I'd rather we have like, you know, I'd rather uh, listen to people who have something to say right now. Def it's definitely way easier to like to to be open to it if you know that the person is like on the same page as you with stuff. Right, and it's also confusing if you've you know I'm I'm like if you've met somebody in real life once and you have that like false feeling of I know them. It's like very similar to that internet thing of not knowing somebody but being like I know this person. We're we're friends on the internet, you know. <laughs> Like, it is a superficial type of relationship, but it can run really long and right. <laughs> feel very deep to both people, but it's just not the same as a right. real relationship between, you know, a real friendship. Um, yeah, if you're a fan of somebody, you're not their friend as much as it may feel like that at times. And if you are a fan of somebody, I think it's good to call them out. If right. You, you know, I was glad that 
Kehlani and other people called out Lana for posting video of the looters during the uprisings um, and just for, you know, because she mentioned Kehlani as somebody who, right. she, uh, who she admired. But, you know, I was like, it shouldn't be on Kehlani to have to tell right, right. of that. She's an adult woman. She should know better. But yeah. as we've seen, a lot of adults, <laughs> you know. Need somebody to call them out. Yeah. And if you <laughs> don't have people around you that can do that, that can tell you when you're saying something ignorant, even if it's accidental, you know. Right. You don't purposely think you're being ignorant. Um, people that you'll listen to and you won't just be defensive to and shut out because you don't like their opinions you know mm-hmm. totally because i think a lot of powerful people it's like the more powerful you get the more you can shut out the people that are like want to push you oh yeah i mean i feel like that's a that's kind of a recurring theme with like you know one of those like age-old questions as far as like certainly as regards to like film directors and then and novelists and that kind of thing is like why is it that that works get worse as they get older a lot of the time when theoretically they should be getting better because they have like all these new experiences like the referential matrix gets like richer they have like all this stuff to draw on they have all this practice like years of practice and a lot of times it's because like they are not coming up against the same obstacles yeah totally and some of what again karina talks about in her poly Platt series is just about just the obstacles facing any woman in the arts that Mm -hmm. are not facing men, you know? And I just think uh, white women especially can think about, you know, what obstacles they haven't faced that their, you know, black and POC peers have had to face and not just be like, well, you know, I'm, I got mine, I got in. So like you do it too. Right. Yeah. That's a very common attitude too, but. I think everybody should be taking stock of like how can I how can I make a a better less racist world for sure and I think a lot of people have read that as like how can I make a better less racist me you know which is not like that's sort of the white fragility thing is a lot of people being like I'm gonna work on like my personal racism and it's like no we need to work on like collective totally racism and societal racism uh, and that requires people talking to each other and not just right. ref- self-reflecting. For sure. I mean, it's we. Um, it's a, a bring. Yeah, it's a thing that we talk about a lot, and I think is kind of like the great misnomer in like the 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 discourse around race that's happening now is like, you know, we shouldn't just be you know, forming like diversity committees at our offices. Like, we should be trying to reform the criminal justice system. <laughs> like. For sure. And I think also the diversity committees are sort of a trap, like according to people that I know, they kind of Mm -hmm. like allow the company to be like, we're working on the problem. Right. Without having to really work on it, you know. Definitely. I mean, you just you go to the meetings and it's just like people talking and never like there is no like resolution or any like no steps are actually being taken. It's just like people like, oh, we're going to make space to like share your experience. But then like nothing comes from that. Right. And I think that that is like a tactic, obviously, um, to try and sort of stop the actually revolutionary things that need to happen. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're, we're in 
I don't know. I don't want to be one of those people who's like some good art will come out of this. You know? <laughs> like, again, I'm like, I don't really care about what art comes out of this. I care about like abolishing prisons and right. And be like, like giving people better lives. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I think that that is like maybe just a, a cultural change, you know, and it does feel very late sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my parents uh, are hippies and my dad worked in freeform radio a lot, which is like very much where my podcasting style and oh, impulses sure. come from too. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Luckily, podcasting, great for that. So I do think that podcasts are, are a good way to get information around that doesn't require a ton of investment. You know, they're, <laughs> it's less of a, a sweat effort i mean obviously it's a lot of work but oh sure i mean it is the kind of thing though it's like you know i feel like every every couple months you see a piece that's like why are podcasts so popular like why are these companies like investing in podcasts and it's like it's because they're the cheapest thing to produce and people love them right and i think that there's like you know commercial podcasts um but also yeah just like a alternative to to bring the sort of village voice back via podcasts to bring that kind of right you know lefty uh local reporting cultural reporting and and political reporting uh back without having to start a whole magazine right so yeah yeah it is cool it's it's i feel like i mean you were talking about la podcast a while ago but it's like that that kind of thing uh, exists in like a lot of cities, I think, where there is kind of a local show that's kind of replaced like AM radio. Yeah, exactly. And AM radio has had such a, a just a grip on the right wing side of that for so long. It's like, we should have a left wing version of that. Right. Alternative news. Yeah. And well, yeah. you you've been you've been podcasting forever, though. I have been podcasting forever. That rocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen, you know, we, we talk about Night Call as being like the gritty reboot of Girls in Hoodies. Yes. And we, you know, we said that kind of as a joke when it started, but it's totally has come true in every way, you know? Definitely. So we do try to have people on and we're trying to do it more, definitely, um, that have something to say, again, about like our specific moment. You know, we're not... We're not as pop culture focused anymore. Right. We're more sort of just culture focused, but we we love uh, taking phone calls. Oh, it's 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 such a fun show. And if any, if like if folks are listening and uh, uh, haven't checked it out, they absolutely should. But yeah, it's like talking about like not being as pop culture focused. It's like it's because of you guys that I knew it was safe to get takeout. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we try to have like something actually relevant, but yeah it's just there's so much misinformation out there now too it just feels like you have to counter it in some way you want to have some people that you're like that's a reliable source of information and even totally everybody fucks up too you know it's easy to get fooled by by an image or or text now Mm -hmm. everything's crazy we try to put a fun spin on it, a fun dystopia at night call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. How did it um how did it come about that you guys got to like kind of reunite and add Tess Lynch, you know? Oh, well Tess Lynch <laughs> was there originally. She um she ended up leaving after 
the first year or two. Um, gotcha. Okay. Then Emily left yes. to go to Vox. And then I had a podcast by myself for a minute called yes. The Lambert Report. Yeah. And, or The Lambert Account, I think. It was I think also, it was Lambert Account. Yeah. Yes. You, you know. <laughs> it was oh, yeah. Because there was a Melrose Place episode where they had to do, do something with a Lambert account. And so everybody kept being like, get me the Lambert account. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've had a lot of podcasts. I like to joke that I'm like the Troy McClure of podcasts. Right. <laughs> many different podcasts, but I do see it as all being kind of an outgrowth of the same thing. And yeah, I do Night Call, but I also have my own little network on Patreon called Molly's Sleazy Friends, where I've been making a lot of kind of like one-off things and mm-hmm. doing more home production, uh, just because it's fun for me. And yeah, I just, uh, I feel as excited about podcasting as I once felt about blogging. Right. I always am excited about something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to be. <laughs> Yeah, I can't even, you know, my own like cynicism can never like quell my enthusiasm for just like making stuff. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, certainly a lot of people who are like really interesting to follow, like feel that way where it's like they, they're, you can't just, you know, as like a critic or a writer or whatever, you can't just be like gloom and doom. Like you have to find the stuff that's like new and exciting to you. Well, everything's so absurd too. It's just like, it's depressing, but it's also insane. So Night Call really tries to straddle, straddle those platitudes. Right, right. (laughs) No, I love it. I'll I'll just say to you directly, I'm a big fan of the show. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Leave us a Night Call, please. Hey, I mean, this is all the uh, encouragement I needed. I'm ready. Yeah. We're taking uh, back-to-work calls right now, too, from people that are being forced to go back to work. So. Yeah, well, yeah, here in about a month, we're going to be opening our school, so I will have a, yeah. a report for you there. <laughs> Love to hear it. Um, I am conscious of time. We're, we have already gone, uh, uh, you've been very generous, and we've all already gone well over the hour that I mentioned, so I, I want to sure, yeah. move into our final, this is sort of a loose rapid fire uh, okay. uh, round where, you know, we'll bring up something quick that, you know, I couldn't fit into something else, uh, but uh, certainly don't feel the need to not go off on something if you feel the need to go off. All right. First, first question. X-Files or Twin Peaks? Ooh, you know, X-Files. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that was my first fandom. I know Twin Peaks is cooler, but I loved the X-Files. That was like the reason I got on the internet was to look at like Angel Fire X-Files sites. Oh, really? It's got to be the X-Files, yeah. It's got to be. I uh, recently, like, watched um, the pilot of both, like, in very close proximity to each other, and I was like, oh, X-Files is just, like, better Twin Peaks. I mean, it's it's sillier. You know, I love Twin Peaks, too. My parents watched Twin Peaks, too, so I feel like it was more like I was like, that's their show, and X-Files is my that's, show. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but what did I you think? Sorry, go like, ahead. I also just felt like uh, solving paranormal mysteries together was like a, you know, the ultimate relationship. Definitely. <laughs> you know? What did you think of that third season of Twin Peaks? The Return. Oh, I loved it. Me too. Um, yeah, I think it's the only good reboot. <laughs> I completely agree. I was really not expecting to like it. I was like, um, I was very doubtful uh, just because it had been so much time later and like, you know, the last thing David Lynch had done was was 
Inland Empire, which like is cool to watch, but it's also like, you know, he just like pieced that thing together. Like you can't Inland Empire your way to a TV show, you know? (laughs) Yeah. No, I love that he just took the money and was like, I'm going to make eight hours or however long of whatever I want. Yeah. (laughs) Of just the weirdest shit anyone's ever seen. And you can't get mad because it's David Lynch. What did you think he was going to do? I will also say that like, as like abstract as a lot of that season was, I found the last two episodes to be like really moving in a way yeah, that I didn't no, expect. It's very intense and good. Uh, I think it stands alone as as a work. Um, totally. I saw Matthew Lillard, who's in that season. He was in the Hollywood Christmas Parade, which is another like now my memory of like the last time I was in a group of people. <laughs> <laughs> but when Matthew Lillard went by, we like ran after him and we were like, Matthew Lillard you're so underrated. <laughs> you're so good in Scream and also SLC Punk and also Twin Peaks The Return. Um, he was going to promote Good Girls, which he's also good in. He was good on Halt and Catch Fire. I really oh, yeah, by Matthew Lillard. Yeah. But yeah. He, was, he was a very, he, he was scary in, the, in Twin Peaks The Return, I thought. Like, yeah. He was a good person to use. I was so ready to laugh at him. And he just, like, completely blew me away. Yeah, totally. And it also makes you be like, time has passed. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, another next topic. Sh- oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I didn't want to cut you off. I was going to say, like, another time has passed. If you watch Riverdale, they cast every teen actor of my childhood to be like, they're adults now. Oh, definitely. Oh, so yeah. R- Riverdale is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm pro-Riverdale. <laughs> me too, me too. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay, next one. Favorite season of Mad Men? Oh, I don't know. It's uh, tough, right? Well, I haven't watched it since it was on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't like rewatch it because uh, it's depressing. And also, I yes. feel like it would make me like so nostalgic. I would die, you know? Oh, and right. I don't want that. Um, so I'm going to say season one. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, I like this. Do you, uh, uh, cause like, I, I guess I, I should say too, that like my introduction to you as a, and your work was like reading the, the Mad Men recaps at this recording and then at Grantland, obviously. Um, it's crazy that like TV recapping had such a moment and now is like impossible. Yeah. It was such a weird niche. And also like I misguidedly was like, this is how I'll get into writing television is by like recapping television, which is. Oh, not- sure. Really, you know, which some people did do. Um, oh, sure. I mean. But then, you know, then it kind of like accidentally got me into journalism for a while. But I still am trying to write TV and film. Uh, yeah. Again, I just, I like to write anything. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, that was, that was why I definitely like, like, it was like uh, reading you and, uh Emily Vanderwerf at AV Club was like every week, like me and my friends would like talk about what you guys said. At, uh, oh, that's great. Yeah. And I think there is value in that. Like a lot of what I was doing on the internet, I was like, it's to create content for people that are like stuck at office jobs. You know, they can like read, read it while they're <laughs> stuck at work. It's so funny you say that because that's exactly how I found it. <laughs> yeah. And now I feel like maybe there's just less of those jobs in general as well. Yeah, totally. You know, it was a moment in time. It, it, there's something nice about writing something ephemeral, but there's also, you know, something nice and challenging about trying to write something that can last beyond just a day. Yeah, right. Uh, all right, next one. Favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Um, it's probably 
probably just Boogie Nights still. That's yeah, yeah. The one I watch the most for sure. Uh, I, I just finally saw Magnolia because it's on Netflix now. Oh, um, yeah. And it's a, it's a movie. It's it's a movie for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it a lot, but it was very like... Oh, uh, it's one of the greatest Tom Cruise performances of all time. It's oh, really... Incredible. Yeah, it's it's worth watching for sure. But I think even he would say like it's not his favorite. Yeah, yeah. Did you like Phantom Thread? Yeah, I loved it. Oh man, it's so good. Oh, that's all. Yeah. That's all of that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sopranos or The Wire? Sopranos. Yes. Um, John Mulaney or Nick Kroll? Um, don't they just go together? You know what? It's probably a false choice, isn't it? It's an oh hello. <laughs> it's an oh hello. <laughs> <laughs> you interviewed John Mulaney, right? Yeah, and he's very good friends with my friend Max Silvestri, who's oh great, sure, yeah, great comedian who opens for Mulaney sometimes. Uh, yeah, he's he's a smart dude. That that John Mulaney, he's funny. Yeah, I think uh, because his like thing is so like wholesome. I, I feel like it kind of gets lost how, like, he has an edge. Oh, yeah, for sure. All comedians do. He, we had, like, a very good conversation that had wasn't in the piece at all that was just about Griffith Park that I was, like, he just was, <laughs> like, you're from here. Like, what's the deal with Griffith Park? It's very haunted, right? Like, <laughs> yes, it's super haunted. <laughs> um. uh, yeah, he rules. He's good. Um, let's see here. Favorite Coen brothers. Ooh, that one's hard, actually. I like them all. I'm trying to think if there's one that I have seen a lot more than the others. What's your favorite Coen brothers? <laughs> you know, that's a, uh, I think it has to be Big Lebowski. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the obvious answer. So I want to say something like Barton Fink, but yeah, like, right. I've definitely <laughs> seen Lebowski the most times. I've seen it the most times. And I also just think it's like, I think it's awesome. I think it's yeah. like, there are so many memorable performances. It's like everything you love about the movies I mean, is I there. I Fargo too. Yeah, oh, Fargo's good. great. Yeah. Why do we have to choose? Why am I'm I doing so bad this? At being Why like am I the... doing this to you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very bad at choosing like the best. I'm always like, they can both win. Right, yeah. Joan Didion and Eve Babbitts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, I've got some I've got some LA specific ones for you. All right, hit me. What did you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I loved it, but again, I know it's like got a lot of problems. I mean, it had a problem when I saw it, which is the whole Bruce Lee scene is fucking horrible and racist. Yeah. But, you know, I watched uh, the rest of it and it was probably, again, probably the last time I was like in a movie theater that I can think of. Oh, man, yeah. I saw it, I saw it twice. I, it's the first time I've done that in forever. It needed some editing is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I would like to see the like seven hour version. That a lot of yeah, I know, seriously. I know you read about how much was like, it's still like a super long movie. You read about how much was like there and you're just like, what is he doing? Like, how does he, well, how does he, you're sorry, go ahead. All of like they set dressed Hollywood Boulevard for like a month, you know, which was yeah. insane. They were just allowed to set dress like the biggest tourist part of town, um, which is, you know, true power. And I was just so into that because they turned it into like 1969, la 
Right. So then I was like, when I see the movie, it will also remind me of like last year when I saw the movie being shot just everywhere because they were yeah. shooting it. I saw them setting it up in the valley too. So yeah, again, I think I'm too close to it to be like, have, gotcha, an, object- gotcha. have an objective uh, opinion. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, how do you rate Pauline Kale? Oh, I like Pauline Kale. Um, I don't always agree with her, but I think she's a great reviewer. Mm-hmm. And um, if anybody wants to give me the Warren Beatty deal that he gave her, where he just <laughs> like paid her to come be a producer and not write bad reviews of his movies, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yeah Mo- molly maybe you should write a couple more nasty reviews and see who can uh hook you up yeah maybe i'll write a mean review of a warren Beatty movie and see if that <laughs> yeah. the Polly and kale deal is still available yeah finally take shampoo to task <laughs> i love shampoo I me too i just watched it bad. on uh criterion channel oh, it was so it's the, great it's the best i would i would I would not say any. Maybe I'll get the Pauline kill for writing something nice about shampoo. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Well, we are uh, unfortunately out of time. It was so nice talking to you. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I'll be listening to Night Call. Uh, We'll be reading you as always. Um, And just real quick before you go, is there anything other than the podcast that folks should check out? Yeah, just check out my other podcasts at uh, Molly's Sleazy Friends on Patreon and... Put, I started another podcast about secret societies. I started one about the dorm canon. I'm just making all kinds of stuff. It's fun. Uh, right on. Cool. Well, again, thanks so much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And I will hit the stop button. And we can wrap up. Cool. Thanks, Colby. Hi, this is Jimmy. Well, that's the end of the music, but it's not the end of the show. For those of you computer literate parrot heads out there, stick this CD into your computer and you can see an enhanced video of what we do and what we say backstage behind the scenes.